Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I think it's really fun to talk about the real-life people behind fictional characters that we know really well. We've done it with Sherlock Holmes. That was a great one. Robinson Crusoe is fun to talk about. And even uh, Candace and I talked about some famous philosophers behind the characters in Lost. It's neat to do this because you get to see what fits and what's true to life, and then what's just pure fiction, you know, what the creators, the writers just invent. One of these real-life matchups listeners like to suggest a lot is Indiana Jones, the dashing, brave, and perfectly deadpan archaeologist from the George Lucas and Steven Spielberg films played by, of course, Harrison Ford. Here's the funny thing, though. Each suggestion that we get for the real indie is almost always different from the next. Always, always different. So it seems that the whole argument could be settled pretty quickly with just a word from Lucas or Spielberg. But each has insisted that there really is no real Indiana Jones, no direct inspiration other than countless matinee serial movies from the 1930s and 40s, pulp action books by writers like H. Ryder Haggard that they read when they were kids, kind of broader inspirations. But that hasn't stopped a lot of folks from putting forward countless contenders. And if you go researching, just if you do a basic search for the real Indiana Jones, you'll find plenty of articles about one particular Indiana Jones candidate that make no mention that there are possible others. You know, it's like this guy is the real Indiana Jones. But we thought it would be a little more fun to round up a gang of these possible Indiana Jones, really only a small selection from a pretty massive group, and discuss their lives, discuss their adventures and their differences. And you'll find by looking at a few of them, at least, that some have the right quest, you know, that sort of fits with the character. Some have the right hat. Yeah, it's kind of like Indy has taken little pieces of all of them. Exactly. But the best hat award definitely goes to naturalist Roy Chapman Andrews. Not exactly Indy's fedora that he's got, but pretty close. Chapman Andrews also had the ego, bravery, and the charisma of a fictional character. Plus an attraction to, of course, the ladies. Strong ladies. Yes, strong ladies in particular. A picture of his first wife, for example, shows her feeding a bear cub. So Chapman Andrews was born in 1884 in Wisconsin and was given a shotgun for his ninth birthday and after that really took to hunting. Eventually, though, he moved on to taxidermy as a way to earn a little extra money for his family. And in 1906, after attending college, he got a job at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City in the taxidermy department. He apparently spent a lot of time cleaning floors and, and doing that kind of work. So not exactly an Indiana Jones start, but eventually the museum began to send him out on research trips. His first trip was to Alaska. He studied aquatic animals, particularly whales, and really helped to build the museum's collection to become one of the best in the world. I, I distinctly remember when I visited New York and went to that museum, the aquatic mammal collection. It's still pretty prominent. Pretty vast. He also visited the Dutch East Indies and Northern Korea, but it was his research in China and Mongolia that really made him famous. The museum's president, Henry Fairfield Osborne, believed man originated somewhere in the Central Asian Plateau. So in 1920, Chapman Andrews proposed that he make an expedition to the Gobi Desert to search for archaeological evidence of this. 
Osborne agreed, he agreed to a five-year expedition as long as Andrews could raise most of the money for this expedition himself. So he quickly became a New York City dinner party regular, securing $50,000 from J.P. Morgan, $50,000 from John D. Rockefeller Jr. We even heard from a listener whose grandmother had been one of Chapman Andrews' donors, which is pretty cool. Well, and he even had letters that Andrews had written to his grandmother telling him, telling her rather about how the expedition was going, what they were seeing, pretty neat stuff. So papers, of course, were interested in this expedition and billed the whole thing as the missing link expedition, something that really bothered Chapman Andrews because he also planned to conduct research in paleontology and botany and zoology and geology, topography, you know, all sorts of sciences. He even brought along a cinematographer named J.B. Shackelford who produced real almost modern nature show like footage, animals running across the Gobi Desert, stuff that you could see on TV today, potentially. Now, the Gobi Desert was a really dangerous place. There were extreme temperatures to deal with, also bandits who would kill travelers, divided political control in Mongolia, and sandstorms. According to a Tom Huntington article in American History, here's how he described one. Quote, almost instantly, a thousand shrieking demons seemed to be pelting my face with sand and gravel. Breathing was difficult. Seeing impossible. I can just see that as a little stage direction or something in a script. Cue thousand screaming demons. And then the wind machine <laughs> comes on. Yeah. Exactly. So the party traveled by camel through this sandy, rocky terrain, but Chapman Andrews also brought along a fleet of dodges. And usually that turns out poorly in these expeditions we talk about when somebody decides to bring a car. It worked out pretty well here. The dodges performed adequately. But strangely enough, even though he was the expedition leader, Chapman Andrews didn't really do that much excavation work himself. His second in command, who was chief paleontologist Walter Granger, had really forbidden him from personal excavation since he thought he worked too fast and would damage things. So instead, Chapman Andrews would hunt for food for the party, collect animal specimens for the museum, and offer a certain amount of protection, too, from those bandits. Still, other members of the expedition, which was very diverse, about equal parts Chinese, Mongolian, and American, they made some amazing finds. The 1922 expedition, for example, produced an ancestor of the modern rhinoceros. The 1923 expedition uncovered the first known dinosaur eggs, a nest of 25, two of which were broken open to reveal tiny dinos. Andrews later said, quote, We tried our best to think of any geological phenomena that could have produced a similar result, but try as we would, we could never get away from the fact that eggs is eggs and that these were laid by a dinosaur. (laughs) I really love that quote. And after the eggs is eggs coup, the museum director, Osborne, decided to extend the whole project, give it an extra lease on life. But Chapman Andrews had to, again, raise more money first. And he decided that to help with the fundraising, he'd auction off one of these eggs back at home, something that did bring in $5,000, but really changed the Chinese government's opinion about the scientists, that they were stealing eggs and selling them back home for money. Still, though, the party continued working through the late 1920s, 
1920s, even though bandits were getting more and more dangerous each year. There was another danger, too, though, one that I think will seem very familiar to Indiana Jones fans out there, and that is, of course, snakes. So during the 1925 trip, desert vipers would swarm the campsite at night when the temperatures dropped, and miraculously, only one member of the party was ever bitten. Yeah, it was Andrew's dog who survived, thank goodness. But for someone with an intense fear of snakes, it was complete torture to be out there. And so Andrew's ended up naming the place Viper Camp. And moved on from it pretty quickly, too, (laughs) by the way. So the last expedition took place in 1930, after which American scientists were barred from the region for many decades. But by that point, new theories had emerged to counter Osborne's that this was the uh, birth of man site, sort of. And no early human bones were even found in the area, even though the party did bring back more eggs, fossils of mastodons. And the New York Times even suggested that after the Chapman Andrews expedition, quote, paleontology should now become almost an exact science. So it really helped transform um, the modern study of dinosaurs and other ancient animals. Well, Indiana Jones, despite his glasses and packed chalkboards back in the classroom, is often called a pretty poor archaeologist in the field. He's rarely seen with a tiny brush and a gridded dig site. A lot of stuff gets broken. Still, he's really popular with some archaeologists, and in fact, the Archaeological Institute of America elected Harrison Ford to its board since he, as Indiana Jones, quote, played a significant role in stimulating the public's interest in archaeological exploration, according to the president of the AIA. So our next real Indiana Jones is much less popular than Harrison Ford, though, in this situation, or I guess the fictional character of Indy. There's even a book on him called, quote, The Giant Archaeologists Love to Hate. He's Giovanni Battista Belzoni, who was born in 1778 in Padua and planned to join a religious order, but instead studied hydraulics. He again detoured after that change in plans. He moved to England and worked as a circus strongman. He was six foot seven, so thus that giant title. And he'd perform there under names like the Italian Hercules or Jack the Giant Killer, according to Chris Amodio in Geographical. In 1815, though, he made another career change. He left the circus business and took his hydraulic inventions to Egypt to present them before Muhammad Ali Pasha. Uh, the Egyptian ruler was pretty unimpressed by these hydraulic irrigation systems that Belzoni was showing him, but Belzoni did meet somebody who later influenced his career. That was Henry Salt, who was the British consul general in Egypt. And Henry Salt sent him on a little looting expedition, essentially, to excavate a colossal head in Thebes. That turned out to be the bust of Ramses II, the great king. And even though it had been damaged by Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, something that we've done an earlier couple podcasts on, Balzoni managed to bring it back to the British Museum, where it inspired Percy Shelley to write Ozymandias, one of my favorite Shelley poems. Oh, I didn't know that about you. 
So two years later, Belzoni started excavating Egyptian tombs for treasure. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, though, much like Indiana Jones, or so we mentioned earlier, he didn't much care what got damaged as long as the valuable stuff that he was looking for came out okay. And those hasty excavations were made even more so by French rivals he was competing against in bandits. Belzoni eventually doubled the number of known royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings. He discovered the tomb of Seti I and even took an entire obelisk from an island in the Nile before French rivals stole it from him at gunpoint. Yeah, he also explored a temple. He found the entrance to one of the pyramids at Giza. And he really added a huge amount to the British Museum store. He did die eventually of dysentery just a few years after while preparing for an expedition to Timbuktu. So... There you go. Not a popular archaeologist. Well, as we mentioned earlier, Lucas and Spielberg both cite Saturday matinee movies from the 30s and 40s as inspiration for their films. These serial films are quest stories, and they often feature an indie-like hero. The look of Raiders of the Lost Ark, however, is at least partly inspired by the 1956 film Secret of the Incas, according to the costume designer. That film, in turn, was partly inspired by the life of Hiram Bingham III, who's credited with rediscovering Machu Picchu. While many scholars believe that German Augusto Burns visited Machu Picchu in 1867, and local people certainly never really lost the site in any way. Encyclopedia Britannica says it was, quote, Bingham and his work that were the key catalyst for the archaeological investigation of sites in the Andes and other parts of South America. He also managed excavations and publicized the site. A Wired article by Randy Alfred actually notes that the entire April 1913 issue of National Geographic was devoted to this. I mean, imagine if suddenly you knew about Machu Picchu and you had not before. So Bingham, who was born in Honolulu in 1875, learned mountaineering as a boy, obviously a skill that would come in handy down the road. And he married the heiress of the Tiffany and Company fortune. Also something that could also come in handy down the road. (laughs) Useful because he was the poor son of a missionary. So in 1906, by that point, a professor, Bingham traveled to um, South America and took the Andean route taken by our former podcast subject again, Simon Bolivar, from Venezuela to Colombia. Then in 1908, he traced another route, this time a Spanish trade route from Buenos Aires to Lima, just trying to get a sense of the continent, it almost seemed to me, and trying to branch out from his academic work and get a little bit more into traveling and exploration. So in 1909, he went to work for Yale as a professor of Latin American history and also started to meet and mingle with Peruvian scholars. Having only really studied South American history from a European perspective before, he became really fascinated at this point by indigenous history and started working with Peruvian excavators who were exploring Chococorral. He was amazed by the site, but he didn't buy the idea that it was the fabled last city of the Inca known as Vilcabamba. Yeah, and when I came across that name, it rang a bell because I used to play the game Amazon Trail, which was a spinoff of Oregon Trail. And you would have to try to get to the city and present this endless list of stuff to the Inca king. He was always, he was never happy with like the (laughs) medicine that you were bringing him and wanted you to bring more and more and more. So yeah, it was a familiar name, but it was what Bingham was hoping he could find. So after some research, Bingham figured that this lost city of Vilcabamba would be near Cusco, Peru. And he traveled from there 
through the Sacred Valley, which was prime estate territory for the Inca emperors back in the day. And then according to a lecture given by historian Christopher Heaney with National Geographic Live, his party eventually sought to ask a local innkeeper if there were any ruins in the area. The innkeeper, whose name was Melchor Artaga, pointed up and said Machu Picchu. So on July 24th, 1911, Artaga led the party across this narrow bridge over a raging river and then up a mountainside covered in vipers, in case you weren't thinking this sounded Indiana Jones-like enough. And then finally came to a family that was living on the slopes. And the family sent their five-year-old son to lead Bingham and the rest of the party up to the fantastic stone terraces of Machu Picchu. So the next year, he and his team excavated human remains, a silver headdress, and many signs of everyday living. Bingham was convinced that Machu Picchu was Vilcabamba, though it actually turned out to be another site that he exposed, something that wasn't definitely realized until the 1960s. Bingham went on to become the governor of Connecticut and a U.S. senator, and he wrote a book called The Lost City of the Incas. Three years after its publication, a film idea was submitted to Paramount featuring a Yale-trained archaeologist and Machu Picchu excavator. Ultimately, the whole story was flipped around, given a new title and a new type of leading man, one very unlike Bingham, but very much like Indiana Jones. So you have this sort of loose connection there between the two. And as a side note, too, just before we move on from Bingham, according to the terms of the original Machu Picchu dig, the Peruvian government gave Yale access to all of the artifacts found there, with the condition that they could be returned at any time. And in 2008, the Peruvian government sued Yale for their return, and uh, Yale agreed to it. And I think by the end of this year, by the end of 2012, they are supposed to return all the Machu Picchu stuff. Well, so far we've talked about a gun-toting, snake-fearing naturalist, a looting Egyptologist, and an academic in search of a lost city. But there's one thing that really defines the character of Indiana Jones, his search for supernatural objects like the Ark, or the Holy Grail, and his desire to keep them out of the hands of people who want them for evil, usually Nazis. Usually Nazis. So this last entry on our list had a very strong academic bent, but also an all-consuming interest in the Holy Grail, plus a very unfortunate connection with the Nazis. Born in Germany in 1904, Otto Rahn was fascinated, of course, by the legend of the Holy Grail, uh, the cup used by Christ at the Last Supper, and also the cup used to catch his blood, which is said to have supernatural powers and is connected to King Arthur and Camelot and all of that. I'm sure most of you know the whole Holy Grail You background. heard of the Holy Grail. <laughs> but um, Otto Rahn became a medievalist. He was so interested in the Grail. And he used the Parseval, which is a 13th century German romance, as his jumping off point for his search for the Grail. He ultimately came to believe that the Grail was connected to a castle in the French Pyrenees, Montsegur. According to a Smithsonian documentary, the castle had been the last refuge of the Cathars, a Christian sect that had been nearly wiped out by crusaders. Survivors banded together inside and managed to withstand a month-long siege before they finally fell in the mid-13th century. They asked for a 15-day stay of execution before being burned alive inside. But before that happened, a small band of knights supposedly snuck outside of the walls, climbed down a cliff, and hid for several days under the castle and fled with 
a bag, a very mysterious bag, possibly containing the Holy Grail. So in 1932, Ron visited the castle and wound up at a cave system about 20 miles away from it, believing that this had been the first hiding place of the Holy Grail. He explored what had been an underground Cathar cathedral with a Senegalese attendant and was really nearly killed when an underground flood rushed through the cave suddenly. I think they were exploring the caves, kind of Indiana Jones style, and then they heard this distant rushing noise and realized that there was a wall of water coming their way. They had to run for their lives out of the cave. Ron ultimately wrote a book about all of his experiences, academic and adventurous, uh, for the Grail and called it Crusade Against the Grail. Then in 1933, he got kind of a strange piece of fan mail. Yeah, it was this mysterious unsigned telegram offering him a monthly salary to write a sequel to his book. So when he showed up at the Berlin address given on the telegram, he found Heinrich Himmler, the commander of the SS and a superfan who had practically memorized his first book and had a castle ready for the Grail, an SS Camelot of a sort with a Grail room. Himmler wanted Ron to work for the SS, searching for the Grail, of course, and while Ron wasn't particularly interested, he really felt that there was no way out of the situation. Understandably, according to an article by John Preston in The Telegraph, he told a friend, quote, what was I supposed to do, turn Himmler down? He also figured it would be pretty good money for his expeditions. It wasn't long, though, before Ron realized that he had gotten himself into a pretty dicey situation. So Himmler loved his next book that he wrote, Lucifer's Court, A Heretic's Journey in Search of the Lightbringers, and even ordered up 5,000 special copies to distribute to Nazi officials. But when Ron looked over his latest work, he started to find things that he hadn't written, including some anti-Semitic passages. So it's worth mentioning here that Ron was openly gay, which was something Himmler chose to ignore, but he may have also been part Jewish or had some Jewish ancestors and not even known that himself. He also, increasingly dissatisfied with working for the SS, began running in anti-Nazi circles pretty discreetly, but still sort of playing with fire there. Regardless, in 1937, Ron fell from Himmler's good grace after a drunken incident. He was punished with three months as a Dachau guard, where he was appalled by what he saw. According to the Smithsonian, he told a friend it had become, quote, impossible for a tolerant liberal man like me to live in a nation that my native country has become. So he wrote to Himmler resigning from the SS, and it's unclear exactly what happened after that, but it's likely that he was told that he would be killed if he didn't do it himself first. So he committed suicide at 34, looking at his favorite mountain. So that's a sad end to one of these Indiana Jones stories. But of course, these four are just a small sampling of the possible indie contenders out there. You'll sometimes hear Vendel Jones mentioned as a likely candidate. He was an American biblical scholar who searched for the Ark of the Covenant. He suggested himself that if you take the V and the L off of his first name, you get N.D. Jones. But according to the Vancouver Sun, Lucas and Spielberg say that the name Indiana actually came from Lucas's dog's name, (laughs) which uh, the dog coincidentally was also the inspiration for the look of Chewbacca. And um, I watched the third film again last night, sort of a research preparation for this. Yeah. And um, there's there's a mention of the dog and how Indiana Mm -hmm. Jones 
who is a junior, t- takes his nickname from the family dog. Spielberg supposedly suggested the name Jones, and the original name idea was supposed to be Smith, I Indiana guess. Indiana Smith does not doesn't have the same ring to it. It really doesn't. I'm glad they decided on Jones. So other possibilities as Indiana Jones inspirations include a few that could easily make nice full-length podcasts in the future, which is why we didn't want to try to condense them to include on this list. T.E. Lawrence, for example, who's better known as the Lawrence of Arabia. Percy Fawcett, who disappeared in the Amazon in the 1920s and was the subject of the great book, The Lost City of Z. Also, F.A. Mitchell Hedges, a British traveler who got into fistfights and searched for the crystal skull. Then there's James Henry Breasted, who was an American who knew Egyptian, Greek, Hebrew, and Arabic, and was the first U.S. professor of Egyptology. And then William Montgomery McGovern, who was a professor at Northwestern who crossed the Himalayas in disguise and shot a 28-foot anaconda that charged his boat while he was in the Amazon. Also the grandfather of the actress Elizabeth McGovern of Downton Abbey. Um, when I was... Getting near the time when we needed to go into the studio and record, I started reading more about these guys and getting like really agitated just because I wanted to find out more about them. They're so interesting. I mean, an anaconda charging your boat. That sounds pretty cool. Sounds pure Indiana Jones. So it was a very fun one to research. And certainly, like you said, a lot of these could be full length episodes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the promising part about it for your little research, Jones, that you were on. (laughs) We will get to cover these people hopefully in the future. So just a final thought. There's a Vanity Fair interview with Steven Spielberg that helps explain a bit why Indiana Jones is apparently such a universal character. He said, quote, Indiana Jones was never a machine. I think one of the things we brought to the genre was the willingness to allow our leading man to get hurt and to express his pain and to get his mad out and to take pratfalls and sometimes be the butt of his own jokes. I mean, Indiana Jones is not a perfect hero, and his imperfections, I think, make the audience feel that with a little more exercise and a little more courage, they could be just like him. So he's not the Terminator. He's not so far away from the people who go to see the movies that he's inaccessible to their own dreams and aspirations. And he's not so far removed from real-life people that these comparisons to admittedly uh, extraordinary men, these adventurers who led extraordinary lives, um, still don't seem too far-fetched. He can have a little piece of each of them almost. Yeah, so even if they're not directing inspiration, it still makes exploring their lives a little more fun. It was certainly fun. So if you have any suggestions for Indiana Joneses that we missed or that you just want to throw out there, I know there are still more. Even with that abbreviated list we did at the end, there are a lot that I did not include. <laughs> but if you have an absolute favorite, feel free to email us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Mist in History, and we're on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the topics we discussed on this podcast, we have a great article called How Archaeology Works, and I think it's written by our own Sarah Dowdy, is it not? It is, and actually, I definitely use Indiana Jones as the page (laughs) zero art, so I think if you go to it, you will find Indiana Jones with his whip and his fedora. And you can find that by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.